Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. The Russian opposition activist Alexei Navalny was given a three and a half year jail sentence this week by a court in Moscow, to where he had returned after recovering in Berlin from a poisoning attack last year. During his hearing, before his sentence was handed down, a defiant Navalny addressed the court. He criticised the trial, saying it was not a demonstration of strength, but a show of weakness, and called on Russians not to be intimidated. He denounced a corrupt system that he said means, while life for ordinary Russians is getting worse, the number of billionaires is growing. And he took the opportunity to lambaste President Vladimir Putin. He accused Putin of attempting to murder him and called him a thieving little man in his bunker. Murder, he said, was the only way Putin knew how to fight. (laughs) He also mocked Putin, comparing him to great Russian leaders of history. We all remember Alexander the Liberator and Yaroslav the Wise, he said. Well, now we'll have Vladimir the underpants poisoner. Later on the podcast, we'll have the story of the Chinese writer, first praised, but then shunned, for sharing her insider account of the Wuhan lockdown. First, though, it's Alexei Navalny, Our correspondent in Eastern Europe, Daniel McLaughlin, has been following this story for us and he joins me now. Dan, we'll look in a moment at the implications of Russia's decision to jail Vladimir Putin's most prominent opponent. And I'd like to talk to you as well about Alexei Navalny's background and his political views. But first, just to look at what happened this week. What was the alleged offence for which he was put on trial and given a three and a half year sentence? So this goes back to a case originally heard in 2014, when Navalny and his brother Oleg were both found guilty of fraud in a case involving a cosmetics company. They both received three and a half year sentences. Oleg was sent to jail for that time and Alexei was given a suspended sentence. Now that was subsequently extended because he, Navalny, was calling protests against the Kremlin which were unauthorised and so on. And a couple of days before the terms of the suspended sentence expired, at the end of last year, the Russian prison service said that Navalny had broken the terms of the suspended sentence by failing to keep in contact with the Russian authorities while he was away in Berlin recovering from the nerve agent poisoning last year. So when he did arrive back in Moscow on the 17th of January, he was immediately arrested, put on trial, and he was indeed put behind bars, sent away for two years and eight months, taking into account some time that he's, he's served under house arrest. And we should note when we're talking about this case that actually the European Court of Human Rights found that the original trial back in 2014 was not fair. And Russia even paid compensation in the case, which Navalny says was almost was really an admission that the, the, the original fraud trial was deeply flawed. But uh, the upshot is that uh, Navalny has been sent behind bars and he could well be there for the next almost three years. And how... How did he react to the verdict or the court's decision this week, the reimposition of this uh, sentence, if you like? Um, We got a flavour of it there at the start of the podcast. Yeah, well, he made a a long and really fiery speech in in the courtroom, um, denouncing Putin, blaming the whole thing on him, calling him uh, a little thief, a small man stuck in his bunker, telling him basically also, as he said, well, he he was sending really a message out to, to the nation and to his supporters from the courtroom saying that Putin wanted to jail one man to scare millions and that his resistance and his calls for an end to the Putin regime will continue and that even if he's sent to jail, his associates uh, in the the anti-corruption foundation that Navalny founded and led, they will continue to investigate, they will continue to release reports and they will continue to 
to lead efforts to get Putin out of power and to, to create a, a less corrupt and more democratic Russia. And how has the international community reacted to these developments? There were strong statements, at least so far. That's as far as it's gone. But very quickly, there were condemnations of the, the trial and the sentence from, from Washington, Berlin, Paris, London. I think it's particularly significant that we saw very strong comments from the White House, from the, the administration of the new American president, Joe Biden. This, I think, speaks to the timing of Navalny's return. In a way, he played it very well. He returned to Russia knowing that he was going to face legal problems and could well be thrown into jail. But he timed it to coincide with Biden becoming president. So he ensured that his own case and the question of Russian democracy more broadly would be placed right in the center of Russian-American relations from the very start. And we've seen that. We've seen strong statements from the states and from European powers, as I mentioned, and calls from Navalny's own team in a letter sent to Biden in, in recent days, calling for a new set of sanctions to be imposed on people very close to Putin. Politicians, officials, senior people in the security service, and perhaps most significantly, some of the, the richest Russians who have flourished under, under Putin over the last 20 years. Navalny is calling for sanctions very specifically to target these people, to cut off their money flows, to stop their money flowing through Western capitals and to make life much more uncomfortable for them so that ultimately it may cause a rift in the elite and they would somehow persuade Putin to change his policies, change his approaches or even to step down. And given the publicity down that this case has received and the platform, if you like, that Navalny has been given to make those kinds of calls, do you think there's pressure growing now on Western democracies to do more to to punish Russia, if you like, for the increasingly authoritarian direction it has taken under Vladimir Putin's leadership? Uh, very much so. And we will see when the European Union's foreign policy, policy chief, Josip Borrell, visits Moscow. He's arriving later today, that's Thursday. He's due to meet the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, tomorrow. And this is clearly top of the agenda. It will dominate the talks tomorrow. And Borrell is certainly under pressure from various sides, from members of the European Parliament, from politicians around the European Union, and indeed from pro-democracy campaigners, including Navalny's allies inside Russia, to take a very strong stance against what Putin's regime has done with Navalny, and generally what, they do, what they've done over 20 years to undermine democracy, free elections, free media, and so on, in Russia. Um, what he will be able to come up with, of course, is, is a very different matter, because there are major questions as to what the European Union as a, as a union of 27 states could agree on to put real pressure on, on Putin and his associates. What about the reaction within Russia itself, Dan? In the run-up to the case this week, we had the unusual spectacle of demonstrations across Russia in support of Navalny and against uh, Putin. How did Navalny's supporters respond to the verdict on Tuesday? Well, there were spontaneous protests on Tuesday night. Uh, Navalny's team immediately got onto social media and called for protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg. They're the centres of Navalny's support. And people did come out, not in huge numbers. Numbers, I think, I would say in the low thousands in Moscow and smaller numbers in St. Petersburg. But there were more than a thousand arrests that night. That gives you an idea of how strong the police presence was. Certainly in Moscow, there was a, a huge reaction by the security forces. They closed off areas around the Kremlin. Riot police in body armour and truncheons charging down streets, chasing crowds of what were mostly very young Russians, 
teenagers, people in their 20s, often getting quite a severe beating. Uh, journalists were also beaten. There was footage of that that went online. I would say a, a, a striking reaction from the security forces that was perhaps more significant than the size of the protests on Tuesday night. Basically, the Russian authorities saying that even if the crowds on the streets aren't particularly huge, we are going to crack down with full force and make sure that... Um, protests in the wake of Navalny's jailing don't get any momentum. And so people around the country and other cities don't take a lead from Moscow and St. Petersburg and come out onto the streets and launch their own demonstrations. And before all of those arrests this week, Dan, we've seen large scale arrests, of course, following the, the previous uh, protests. There must be a lot of Navalny supporters in custody right now. I mean, where are they all being held? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we saw tens of thousands of people coming out over the last two weekends right across Russia. So that was really a demonstration of Navalny's reach. And we should note as well, perhaps, that, that this is a reach on social media and online because he's not given any airtime on, on state media. Um, so he did manage to mobilise a lot of people. There were thousands of people arrested, something like 10,000 people arrested, according to independent monitors, over the previous two weekends and then the protests on Tuesday. And the system is coming under strain in terms of how to hold all these people. This morning, the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov admitted that there was major overcrowding in detention centres around Moscow. We've seen photos coming out from people held in these in these cells, in rooms that were designed for five or ten people, we're seeing 25, 30 people being held in pretty grim conditions. I mean, these might be places that haven't been renovated since the Soviet days or, you know, the early 90s. Um, so quite grim conditions, lots of people being held there. We saw some accounts on social media as well of people being held for many, many hours just inside police buses. One account said that a group of people were held for up to 40 hours inside a police bus without being given much food, without being given water. It was very cold. And so we see that the system is coming under strain simply from the number of people who have been held. But again, significantly, the, the, there was a very harsh message from Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman this morning, saying that the protesters basically only have themselves to blame. If they're stuck in an unpleasant situation, if they end up getting a police record, if they end up spending many, many hours or days in these squalid detention centres, they should learn the lesson that they should not go out and join unsanctioned protests. And that's a message that's going out to these, these people now in detention. And obviously anyone else who's thinking of joining subsequent protests around the country in the days and weeks to come. And are further protests planned in, in those days and weeks? Well, Navalny's team has certainly said they will continue to, to try and get people out in the streets, to try and mobilise people. There aren't any plans that I've seen at the moment, uh, concrete plans for, for, for times and dates and locations. But I think we will certainly see protest action in, in the fairly near future from Navalny's team. I mean, it, it remains to be seen. This is one of the interesting questions which we should get an idea about over the next 48, 72 hours and in the days after that, how badly affected Navalny's ability to organise is affected by his own jailing, of course, but also the um, arrest of a number of his key aides and organisers in Moscow, St. Petersburg and around the country who've been put under house arrest in recent days. Can Navalny's organisation, which has been effective in getting messages out online through social media and in mobilising people, can they continue to do that with the the immense legal pressure that they're under at the moment. We have seen protests against Putin in the past, but they've been put down fairly 
quickly and effectively, and they've never really posed a serious threat to his leadership. Is there any reason to believe that it might be different this time? At the moment, I don't think the authorities will be particularly worried. We've seen significant numbers, certainly in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but we're not seeing really a really broad show of support for, for, for Navalny in different sectors of society. So if we compare it, for example, to the protests in Belarus last year, or going back to Ukraine in 2013-14, when big groups of people from factories, for, there were farm workers, there were students, there were professionals, lawyers, doctors, teachers, everyone was coming out on the streets to show their dissatisfaction with the regime. We're not seeing that uh, really broad cross-section of society coming out behind Navalny at the moment. We're not seeing any disruption to economic life, for example, in Russia, badly disrupted by the scale of the protests or, for example, by uh, metro stations being closed down and things like that. So I think, judging from the size of the protests so far, and also the strength of the reaction from the authorities, they're making clear that protests will not be tolerated and they're banking on the fact that this very tough reaction will put down protests quickly and make sure that uh, the protests don't gain any momentum that could lead to any unprecedented danger, let's say, for, for, Putin's, uh, for Putin's regime. So, Dan, just to talk a bit about Navalny himself, I mean, he's a very well-known figure now across the Western world as a result of his poisoning and imprisonment this week. But probably less is known about the man himself. I mean, where does he come from and what's his background? Yeah, so Navalny is 44 years old. He grew up in a town called Obaninsk, outside Moscow. Uh, He studied law. And his first move into politics in the 2000s came with a liberal party called Yabloka. That's a party which is popular with urban liberals and the intelligentsia, It's had a fairly low profile and a profile that's been getting lower, really, under Putin over the last 20 years. But that's where Navalny started out. In around 2007, Yabloka actually expelled Navalny for his growing involvement in nationalist events. He was taking part in something called the Russian March uh, in Moscow, which was an annual event which gathered mostly far-right groups together. And at this time, for the space probably over about five years or so, he did use nationalist far-right rhetoric to talk about uh, migrant workers from the Caucasus, to talk about um, immigrant workers coming in from former Soviet uh, states in Central Asia, at the same time as using this nationalist rhetoric, a lot of which was, was very ugly indeed. He was, still try- he was still, as the core of his message, attacking corruption and misrule, as he saw it, by Putin and his associates. So it looked like at the time he was trying to bring together these two groups, very disparate groups in Russian society that were against against Putin. The liberals who had particular concerns about graft, corruption, cronyism, misrule, uh, the undermining of democracy in Russia, the lack of free media, things like this. And then the nationalist side who were concerned about immigration and ethnic Russians supposedly getting a bad deal It didn't really work, of course, because the the two groups would never get on together and his rhetoric targeted at one group tended to alienate the other group. Do we know, Dan, um, uh, has he changed his political views over the years? Have they evolved, you know, from the time he did engage in this kind of right-wing rhetoric that you mentioned? Or has he just kind of stopped talking about that stuff because it's it's less convenient uh, to do so in terms of trying to get support from the West and so on? He certainly stopped talking about it. I mean, for, for the best part of the last 10 years, he, he, he's completely dropped, certainly the, the more inflammatory rhetoric that he used. Although it's interesting, while he has expressed some regret over the way he expressed himself at that time, some of the phrases, some of the language, some of the imagery that he used, he hasn't apologised for, 
for addressing those issues, and he hasn't completely disavowed the, the, the substance of the opinions that he expressed back then. He said that he's always wanted to appeal to Russians outside the, the liberal elite in the big cities. He has indeed, even while uh, dropping some of the more extreme rhetoric, he has said, for example, during the war in, in Georgia, this was in 2008, when Russia sent forces into Georgia, he used uh, defamatory language about Georgians. Subsequently, in 2014, uh, after Russia's annexation of Crimea, he said, okay, he admitted that Crimea had been seized illegally by Russia. But he also at the same time said uh, he didn't think that Crimea should be given back to Ukraine at the time. As he put it, it's not a sandwich to be passed back and forward. And he also encouraged Ukrainians to accept that they would not regain control over Crimea for any time in the foreseeable future. So a lot of Russia's neighbours would have concerns about what Navalny would do as a leader. What some analysts of Navalny's career think this shows is that he's opportunistic, that he will go where he thinks he can draw support, he will go where he thinks he can mobilise people and get them out onto the streets. He is pragmatic and has, as he's made clear all the way along, his ultimate aim is to bring down Putin and change the nature of Russian democracy. So what has he done, Dan, to further that goal, that is, of bringing down Putin after the earlier failure to unite liberals and the far right against him? From about 2011, 2012 onwards, he's really concentrated on the anti-corruption investigations, looking into what's happening, with where, where the money is going under Putin, who is benefiting most financially from from being closely connected to the Putin regime. And that's, uh, that's been his focus. He's campaigned on a number of occasions for, for office. Uh, he has been, actually, because of his convictions, he's been banned from running for president. But he did run for mayor of Moscow a few years ago, and he got a pretty respectable result, especially considering, as I mentioned, the fact that he doesn't get any airtime on state TV. He got 20-something percent in Moscow but because he's been uh, pushed out of elections personally, he has in recent years focused on trying to encourage uh, and find ways to undermine uh, the uh, electoral prospects of the ruling party, United Russia, in Moscow and St. Petersburg and around the regions. So his, his latest project is something called smart voting. So in uh, local elections last year and what he wants to do in parliamentary elections later this year, is coordinate with his, his activists around the country, identify politicians running in elections, uh, no matter where they come from on the political spectrum. They could be people from the far right, they could be communists. If they represent the best chance of beating Putin's representatives in elections, he will back them and he will encourage his, encourage his supporters to back them and vote for, that, for, vote for them. Um, in a push to basically undermine Putin and the United Russia Party uh, all over the country to create cracks in the regime, um, which he hopes will allow alternative political forces to then come through. We haven't dwelt on his poisoning here, Dan, because listeners will be familiar with that story. But maybe just could you quickly recall the circumstances for us? When did it happen and, and what do we know now about, you know, who might have done it? Yeah, so uh, last August, when Navalny was on a trip to Siberia, he was flying back from Tomsk and he fell ill on the flight. He was taken to a hospital in Omsk, and there for a couple of days, as his family and his supporters gathered there, 
they started calling for him to be allowed to, uh, to for him to be evacuated and treated in Europe because they didn't, they said they didn't trust the doctors. The doctors in the hospital in Omsk claimed that he hadn't been poisoned, that he'd had some kind of uh, allergic reaction perhaps, or um, he had some kind of metabolic problem which had sent him into a coma. Navalny's wife, Yulia, and his supporters said, this is clearly nonsense, he's been poisoned, we need to get him uh, the best medical help possible as quickly as possible. So after a couple of days, he was flown to Berlin in a coma, which he emerged from after more than a week. Labs in Germany, in France, in Sweden, all found that his blood was tainted with Novichok, a nerve agent produced by the Soviet Union, which Russia claimed to have destroyed several years ago. Russia denied all involvement in this. Then Navalny spent subsequently about five months recovering, recuperating, doing physio to get back into decent shape, at which point he flew back to Russia. While he was in Germany, the Bellingcat investigative group released a startling report, really, which connected, using uh, data that they'd managed to acquire, travel data, really striking correlations between people who they discovered were members of the Russian security service and Navalny and and the places that they had travelled over the past several years. And it became clear that groups of security service agents had been basically following Navalny all over Russia, as he went to campaign, as he went to research uh, his anti-corruption reports, and so on, that he always had a tail uh, from the Russian security services. At around the same time, they released details of the group that they thought had been involved in the actual poisoning in Siberia. And in his statement in, in court the, the other day, Dan, he referred, Navalny referred to Putin as the underpants poisoner. What was he referring to there? What he was referring to was one of the details that emerged from the investigation that he and Bellingcat put together into the circumstances of his poisoning last August. Navalny called uh, several people who Bellingcat found or believed were involved in the, in the operation. In one of these calls, Navalny pretended to be a security service officer trying to get basically put together a brief report on what went wrong for the security services, what went wrong with the operation. And one of the people he called was taken in and believed that he was indeed speaking to a colleague from the security services. And he went through with Navalny on the telephone in a call that Navalny recorded. He went through some of the details of this operation. And Navalny was saying to him, so what, you know, what were the trickiest aspects? Where, what did you have to do to get rid of traces of this, um, of this nerve agent? And this guy said on the phone to uh, the guy called, uh, his name is Kudryavtsev. Okay, then tell me what kind of clothes it was applied on. What was the main focus? What's the riskiest piece of clothing in theory? Well, underpants. Underpants. And, and he told Navalny, yeah, well, you know, it, it was there. It was there in a high concentration. We had to make sure that there were absolutely no traces of this nerve agent left in his underpants. These blue underpants of Navalny's uh, became a kind of symbol of this whole case, a symbol of, of the attack, a symbol of Navalny's resistance to Putin. And hence you have Navalny in court calling Putin, Russia's ruler of 20 years, Vladimir the poisoner of underpants. Well, Dan, on that edifying note, there's a story that has everything, but we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Um, thanks for talking to us today. In January 2020, the Chinese city of Wuhan became the first place in the world to enter a state of lockdown due to the coronavirus outbreak. Inside the quarantined city, the well-known Chinese writer Fang Fang began chronicling her daily life. 
At first, her diary entries were a source of solace to Wuhan's 11 million residents. But after the diary was published internationally, life for Fong Fong began to change. Michael Berry, Professor of Asian Languages and Culture at the University of California in Los Angeles, undertook the English translation of Wuhan Diary. He talked to producer Suzanne Brennan about how the diary became the subject of fierce political debate and controversy in China. So Fang Fang is a writer. She's 65 years old. She's had a long career that's lasted more than four decades in China. She's had a very good relationship with the Chinese government. Over the years, she's published more than 100 books, um, including short stories, essays, novels, many of which are set in the city of Wuhan, where she spent her whole life since the age of two. And so she's probably the single writer in China most frequently associated with Wuhan. We're going to begin here with the outbreak of a mystery virus in China that now has the World Health Organization on edge. At least four people have died. The lockdown in Wuhan began on January 23rd, and two days later, on January 25th, she begins an online diary. And every day she would record her thoughts, her feelings, her fears, her anger, her frustrations. Uh, She would convey medical knowledge that she was getting from doctor friends who were out there in the field and on the front lines. And you have to keep in mind, this is kind of going down a dark tunnel. Nobody knew what the word COVID-19 didn't even exist at this point. People didn't know how contagious it was, how exactly it was transmitted, what methods we should be using to protect ourselves. And so she's learning as she's going. She's trying to collect information, share it with her readers. And she put these up every night. Um, So they have a certain explosive nature to them. They're not well-crafted, beautifully ornate literary flowers. Instead, they're really explosive messages from the front lines about what she was experiencing and in turn what many of the 9 million residents of Wuhan were experiencing during this very fearful and uncertain time. A big part of what was also happening was that besides the diary's content, which talked about health measures, protective measures, what people are going through, there was another narrative thread in the diary where Fang Fang calls for accountability, where she does identify certain missteps that China took in the first 20 days or so. Silencing of the whistleblower Li Wenliang, officials who downplayed the severity and the how contagious the outbreak was, things like that. And so she calls out for these officials who screwed up to apologize, to take responsibility, and to resign. I think that opened up a certain vulnerability for people in power in China because here was someone that had 50 million readers on the internet screaming out for accountability. We need to hold people who messed up accountable. Fang Fang has been targeted ever since 2017. She wrote a novel called Soft Burial, which was very viciously attacked on Chinese social media. And those same trolls that started attacking her in 2017 came out of the woodwork in 2020. The attacks took place on on multiple levels. For Fang Fang, a lot of them were sexualized, where, you know, threats of rape and really ugly, ugly, uh, ugly language. And 
then you also have certain influential figures on social media that have taken up the cause against Fang Fang, and some of them have eight or nine million followers. You also have real-world ramifications. So there was a, a famous Tai Chi master named Lele who put out a public statement calling for other members of the Chinese mixed martial arts world and martial arts world in Wuhan to find Fang Fang, track her down, and punish her. Um, I mean, this, these are open calls to incite violence. There are people who have posted defamation posters against her in public near her house. There are people who have thrown bricks and rocks into her courtyard. Um, they've come after her, her, her daughter on social media and members of her family. And there's also official repercussions in that she's been unable to publish any of her books and, and no publishers are willing to touch anything that she's put out since then. And that's her livelihood. You know, this is a writer who makes her living and also finds meaning in life by writing and sharing her ideas. And now that, at least for the time being, seems to have been cut off. You know, and, and there's pop culture attacks. There's been rap songs, like diss songs against her. And it just, it's played out on so many different levels. Academic books that have tried to dissect her diary chapter by chapter, trying to point out each and every inconsistency and flaw and provide so-called proof uh, that the diary is not valid. If you, if you follow all the controversy and then read the diary, you're going to be disappointed because you're going to think, wow, this she must be calling for the downfall of the Chinese Communist Party or something. I mean, because the, the level of attacks have been so tenacious, you, you must think there's something so terrible in this book. And you read it and you realize it's just an average person with very sane and civil recommendations, thoughts, reflections, but somehow... It got caught in in the wrong time, in a sense. It basically the the tectonic plates of the world were shifting beneath our feet as she was writing this book and as I was translating it. And so, unfortunately, as the book was just rolling out, that was exactly when Donald Trump started making these racist comments about the China virus or the Chinese flu and kung flu and these very racist terms. Why do you keep using this? A lot it of comes say from it's China. racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. It comes from China. I want to be accurate. Which greatly exacerbated U.S.-China relations, antagonized the relationship, and somehow caused this book to be looked at and framed within that context. And, and that's part of what led to all of the detractors claiming that this was an anti-Chinese book or it was a book meant to hurt China. People felt there was a political value in attacking the book in the context of the increasingly tense relationship between the United States and China. I hope one day Wuhan Diary will be published in China. Originally, it was actually it was slated to be published, and and then once the controversy heated up, it it got pulled. You know, right now, I think the government is very tightly controlling a lot of the narrative, and hopefully, one day, things will ease up a little bit, so they'll allow Fang Fang to publish again. But, you know, there's been a lot of international media organizations that have been giving her, I guess, confirmation and certain. Um, I mean, BBC labeled her as one of the 
100 Most Influential Women of 2020. And so it's heartwarming to see those gestures. But I'm sure that for her, what's most important is to be recognized and acknowledged by her own compatriots and people in China. And unfortunately, right now, that's not happening. And the attacks, unfortunately, have just continued incessantly for her for well over a year now. And I'm sure that that's been a very dark shadow to to live under. And it's it wouldn't be easy for anyone. I, I'm somewhat consoled by the fact she does have such a strong character and such a strong perseverance that she's able to take it and move forward. But I so hope that one day this can all be brought to an end and she can get back to her normal life again. That report was by Suzanne Brennan. That's all for this week. Thanks again to Suzanne and to Daniel McLaughlin. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.